Well, uh, all throughout this week we've had uh, the auditors at the church. Uh, They come uh, once a year and for some uh, members of our staff it is a a very stressful, uh, time-consuming week. Rachel Glogue has been very busy. Uh, Our treasurer, Paul Horton, also very busy. Uh, Thankfully, uh, once again, everything uh, seems to be in place. The auditors come to check out our finances to see if they are as they should be. And uh, as I saw these uh, people uh, who appear in our lives uh, once a year, uh, appear once once again last Monday, uh, a thought occurred to me as I was preparing this passage. What if uh, when they arrived on Monday morning and we got out the financial book of our church and uh, Rachel and Paul proudly said, you'll find everything's in order. Uh, What if they said, well, actually, we're not here to look at the spreadsheets and the invoices, the, the pounds and the pence. We're here to look at you. And what if the audit uh, of Christchurch Forward was on our lives as Christians and our life together as a church? What if that's what they were checking? What if they were checking to see if the reality of who we say we are matches up to the book that shapes us? How would we go in that audit? Now you can breathe easy. There are no uh, auditors amongst you tonight. I I don't think so anyway. And uh, that's not really uh, in their job description. But don't breathe too easily because we are in fact constantly being audited when it comes to our Christian lives and our life as a church. We are constantly under the microscope as followers, as disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, If you claim to be his follower, that claim is going to be checked out not only in what you say, but in how you live. And surely at the moment uh, that is even more so as we have opened ourselves up to scrutiny in this parish as we have visited every home in this parish, we have opened ourselves up for just that sort of scrutiny. And surely we feel it in our families. Uh, Those of us who are clearly known as followers of Jesus in our families, uh, some of you will know the scrutiny that that can put you under in your family. We know it in our workplaces, uh, we know it at university, we know it in our schools, we know it in our social circles, our lives as followers of the Lord Jesus, are under the microscope and so they should be. Even tonight I I suspect there are people here investigating the claims of the Christian faith. And as they do, one of the things that they'll be looking for or they should be looking for is what genuine discipleship of Jesus looks like. Uh, They'll want to see what difference it actually makes when you believe this gospel, when you know it to be true. And so if you are here tonight and you are not a follower of Jesus, what tonight's passage is going to do is it's going to give you four characteristics, four marks that you should look for if you are looking for genuine disciples of Jesus. And for those of us, most of us here who do follow Jesus, what this passage is going to do is it's going to show you four characteristics or four marks that you should long to see more and more in your Christian life and more and more in those around you so that our lives uh, match up to the book that we say shapes the way we live. And and so as we begin, uh, that's what we're going to see tonight, those four characteristics. Uh, Let's recap uh, where we've been in this series in Luke 22. Uh, We're following uh, this chapter as as we get towards Easter. We're following the last moments, the last hours of Jesus' life. And in the first uh, 23 verses we've seen the combined forces of our world of humanity, of Satan standing opposed to God. We've watched as they make their plans, plans that they are delighted in, we've watched those plans prove futile and deadly. We've watched as our God makes his own plans, plans that overrule our plans, sovereign, gracious plans. 
a plan centering on the plan to give his son's body and blood as a ransom for our sin. To give his son as a way back to relationship with our God. A plan that will reach fulfilment in that glorious day that we looked at last week. The the day when we will feast with him and with all that he will gather to himself in his kingdom. That's what we've seen. And in tonight's passage, as Jesus moves closer to the events that is going to bring that plan about, his death and resurrection and his ascension to heaven, as, as those moments get closer and closer, we are going to see these four characteristics four marks that must be found in our lives as we wait for the king to return. And here's the first of them. You can see it on the outline there, uh, verses 24 to 27. The first is that we must be people who are humbly serving. Uh, In in our passage, uh, with all the the joy of sharing this amazing meal with Jesus uh, in the the background, uh, with the promise of this kingdom that's soon to come, Jesus has been talking about, A kingdom that the disciples know they'll have a place in. With all that ringing in their ears, the inevitable human response arises in verse 24. A dispute arose among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. Talk of a kingdom. I'm going to have a spot. I wonder how important my spot will be. It's amazing, isn't it, how quick they've lost sight of of Jesus' sacrifice that he's been talking about, how, how quick they've lost sight of their desperate need for him to do that for them, how quick they are to fix their eyes on themselves and their comparative value in this kingdom. Surely if Jesus is bringing a kingdom and I'm with him, then, then my spot's going to be a great one and perhaps, perhaps some greater than others. Well, Jesus' response to their dispute is not to resolve it at all. Do you see it there in verse 25? I mean, that's what we want, isn't it? When, when we're comparing ourselves to each other as Christians, when we fear comparison or or we want power over someone, we want someone to come along and say, yes, you are important. Of course you are. You're valuable. You're special. That's not what Jesus does at all. Instead, he challenges that sort of thinking altogether. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Jesus says, you want to talk about greatness? This is how greatness in our world works. When you boil it down, worldly greatness is about one of two things. Either you are pursuing power or you're pursuing payment. Power or payment. And do we not see that in our world, the pursuit of power? Just this week I've been reading, and I'm sure you have too, of the the interaction between Gordon Brown and and Tony Blair as the, the handover of power got closer as it seemed that Tony Blair was uh, endlessly waggling on the tee, not, not standing down, Gordon Brown got more and more angry. Uh, the quote, whether it is true or not, was this during this week, you've ruined my life, I want to be in charge. Who is better than me? It sounds just like verse 24, doesn't it? And who among us has not felt that sort of grab for power in the workplace if you're a worker? I remember when I worked out for Unilever in Sydney, there was a corner office in our department that was clearly the head honcho's office. That's where everyone was aiming to be and, and at one point while I was there, the, the office was vacated as the person moved on to another job. And the, the clamouring for power, the, the sort of manoeuvring to be the person who got that job was amazing. Of course, it was all very polite and all very uh, not up front, but it was there. I deserve that spot. I've worked hard for it. 
I'm important. And the great danger, of course, is when that view creeps into the church. The fear of being less important, less significant than someone else. The fear of someone having power over you. Perhaps you felt that fear if you're led by a peer in this church. What if they rebuke you? What if they call you up on some sin or some attitude? I mean, who do they think they are? They're not in charge of me. Maybe I'd expect, accept a, a rebuke or a challenge from Paul Williams, but not you. You're just like me. All such disputes, whether it's Gordon Brown or a small group at this church, comes from the universal human disease of pride. J.C. Ryle put it best, speaking of this passage, he said, the sin before us is a very old one. Ambition, self-esteem, self-conceit. It lies deep at the bottom of every man's heart. Thousands who fancy that they are humble cannot bear to see an equal more honoured or favoured than themselves. You know that feeling? And then there is the other part of it, the pursuit of payment. Jesus uh, speaks of the rulers, uh, the great ones of, of their time as benefactors. That's what they call themselves. It's a great title, isn't it? It sounds so noble, so, so fantastic. I'm a benefactor. I'm the guy who provides a benefit for everyone. But they were also the ones who wanted to have that benefit trumpeted, publicly acknowledged. Their wonderful service, their wonderful help should be acknowledged. You ever felt that? When it comes to the, the, the benefit you provide to another, I feel it acutely. I wonder if you do. Do you ever feel that your service of others is not getting its due? You ever felt that way at work, uh, whether it's your efforts are not acknowledged or you are passed over when promotions come? Or perhaps it's in a family. I mean, this is one of the great tensions, isn't it, between a husband and a wife. My efforts are not acknowledged Well, how about in this church? Are you a benefactor? Is your presence and activity a benefit to this church? I hope so. But you need that to be acknowledged in some way, some public acknowledgement for your efforts. You ever felt you deserve more credit than you are given? I have. And if you're like me, Jesus has a word for us in verse 26. Do you see it there? You are not to be like that. You are not to be like that. If the auditors find in us uh, as followers of Jesus a pursuit of power or recognition, they find something that is foreign to his kingdom. They find something that has no place in genuine discipleship. You are not to be like that. Instead, Jesus says, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. Greatness in God's kingdom means service. It means living as the, as the youngest one at a table whose rights are deferred to, who defers sorry, his rights to others, who, who is the last to put up his voice and say, what about me? That's the life that comes from the gospel. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? It's nice to hear that. It's nice to know that that's the heart of discipleship, but it's very hard to live it. Because if you're like me, my heart is filled with the pride that marks this world. 
Well, how do you overcome it when, it when it's not just a few behaviours, when it's not just a, a little foible, but right at the heart of me is this pride that wants that power or acknowledgement? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in verse 27. He says this, I am among you as one who serves. I am among you as one who serves. If you want to foster this characteristic in your Christian life, then you need to turn your eyes away from your culture. Turn your eyes away from a culture that influences you far more than we would admit. And even from a very early age. I was talking to a friend a little while ago who, who told me that uh, her, his daughter came home uh, from school singing a song that they'd been taught at school and the, the song went like this. I am a VIP. I'm a very important person. I'm a VIP. Great song, isn't it? Taught from an early age. I'm really important. Now the problem of course is by the time we get to adulthood we're not so much concerned as to whether we're a VIP or not. We're absolutely sure of it. We're more concerned about uh, what the Americans call being the MVP. I'm the most valuable person here. That's our culture. We are soaked in it and far more influenced than, than we think we are. Jesus says turn your eyes off that and instead turn your eyes to Jesus. Fix your eyes on greatness as he shows it. I am among you as one who serves. Fix your eyes on the one who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Fix your eyes on the one who made himself nothing, who took on the very nature of a servant, who became, was made in human likeness. Fix your eyes on the one who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I think if he is our vision, we will sing a very different song on the way home. I am among you as one who serves. Can you imagine that? Imagine that that describes your Christian life, that when your life is placed under scrutiny, when the auditors look at your life, what they see is humble service. Well, let's make that prayer for one another, that we be amongst each other as those who serve. Well, there's the first characteristic of genuine discipleship. The second you see in verse 28, humble hope. Now, I reckon this one helps us with the first because living a life of humble service is surely a risk, isn't it? I mean, can you feel the risk of operating that way as a humble servant in your workplace, as being the, the, the one who serves? That's your, your job description. Can you feel the risk of it in your family as, as not just the one who serves from time to time, but you are the one in your family who's the servant? Surely there's a risk that that will be taken without thanks, that it will be presumed upon. Well, can you feel the risk of living in this church as the one who serves? Walking into a gathering like this one tonight with only one purpose in mind, you're not a customer, I am the one who serves. There's a big risk there, isn't there? Well, no, says Jesus. Not only is it the right way to live because he commands it, there's no risk in it either. Do you believe me? Well, the great thing is you don't have to believe me. Believe the one who has lived it and proved it. And what verse 28 uh, to 30 do for us is they show us the pattern that proves there's no risk here. What these verses say is that servant-hearted faithfulness to God will be vindicated, guaranteed. 
Jesus sets the pattern for us. The apostles are told they will follow it and wonderfully so do we. Now, all the way through Luke's Gospel, Jesus is shown to be faithful. As he's tested again and again by Satan back in Luke chapter 4, as Satan offers him all sorts of greatness, all sorts of prestige, he refuses to take it. He proves faithful to God. He will prove faithful in the chapters that follow the one we're looking at as he is tested to the very end. He remains faithful to his father. And in verses 28 to 30, we see how that is vindicated. His father gives him a kingdom, a kingdom that he has a wonderful place in. He sits at a table. It is his table in that kingdom and he rules in that kingdom. It is my kingdom, says Jesus, verse 30. And as it is with Jesus, so it is with the apostles. Do you see what Jesus says in these verses? Standing with him, he knows, has become increasingly hard. It's not easy being his disciple. Uh, The opposition is growing. Judas has just betrayed him, but they've stood by him in all of this and God will acknowledge that. And so the pattern that was set with Jesus follows them. Do you see it there in verse 29? They will share, have a share in his kingdom. And even more than that, uh, verse 30, we're told they'll have a place there. Do you see the place? They will sit at his table enjoying fellowship with their king. Now, I don't know about you, uh, there's lots of different pictures of, of what our hope as Christians is like in the Bible, lots of different ones to hang our hat on to say that's what I'm looking forward to but this is one of my absolute favourite. Uh, the thought that there will come a day where I will sit at his table feasting with him and I'll be completely allowed to be there. I won't be out of place. And even more than that, you see there verse 30, they will have thrones in his kingdom. How big is that? Now we're not told uh, the specifics here, I suspect mainly because uh, Jesus knows that if he starts to outline what that will mean, they'll be back at verse 24 talking about whose throne is the, the biggest. But what it does show is humble service is the logical way to wait for this kingdom when you know what is coming. And here is where this starts to touch down with us. As it was with Jesus, as it is with the apostles, so it is with us. You come to Jesus... You accept his sacrifice for you that we saw last week and you will be welcomed into his kingdom. Colossians 1 says this, He has rescued you from the dominion of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of the Son he loves. You have a place there. Uh, Back in Luke 13, we saw this last week, we are told that people will come from every corner of this globe to feast at that table, including us. And try this on for size for hope. Revelation 2 says this, To him who overcomes... And does my will to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. That's big, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that you will judge the world? Let me say, if you struggle with servant-heartedness in whatever context you find yourself in, fix your eyes on that hope. And again, you see the power of living authentically as a follower of Jesus. Humble service in light of our wonderful hope. That's what people should see as they look in on this community. Well, here's the third one, the third uh, mark of genuine discipleship that our passage shows us. Uh, Verse 31, humble self-awareness. You see, as we wait for our king to come, as we wait for this glorious hope, not only are we to be aware of that, we must stay aware of ourselves as well. 
And it's Jesus' instruction uh, to Peter in these verses that's going to help us with that. Three things that we need to know about being self-aware. And the first of them you see there in verse 31 is this. You have a strong enemy. Now, from the wonderful hope of a share in God's kingdom comes news of the present for Simon Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Now, the you here is plural. He's talking about all the disciples. Satan plans to attack them. Uh, the, the word uh, Jesus uses, sifting, it comes from a farming image, a, a picture of a grain of wheat in a sieve and slowly that grain of wheat, the head of it, is pulled apart. Jesus is saying to the disciples, Satan is aiming to pull your life apart. He is aiming to tear you apart so that you are no longer able to do the very thing that you were called to do as my disciple. I reckon this verse comes as a bit of a shock. A bit like verse 3 did when we saw that uh, behind Judas's actions was Satan. Here we see that there is something very big at play in our lives, something very powerful at play in our lives. It's a verse that should say to us to take very seriously the power of our enemy, Satan. Uh, Jesus in John's Gospel calls him the ruler of this world. Paul uh, in 2 Corinthians calls him the God of this age. His ambition is to destroy you by destroying your faith in Jesus. That's what he aims to do. And all throughout the New Testament we see the ways he does it, the ways he aims to pull your life apart. Uh, Earlier in Luke we were told he he loves to snatch the word of God away from us before it can take root. You know that experience of being convicted by God's word, whether it be in a sermon or a small group or reading it for yourself, realising change has to come and before the change comes the word is gone. Satan loves that moment. Uh, In the book of uh, James we're told that Satan loves to promote pride in us. He's very good at it, isn't he? We're told elsewhere that he loves uh, us to harbour anger and unforgiveness. Loves it when we don't forgive. And I feel that one acutely. I I reckon on that one he had me for 10 years. 10 years. Last Thursday marks 13 years since my best friend died, February 25. And I'm pretty sure that of those 13 years, 10 of them I had not forgiven the guy responsible for. Now that may seem reasonable but really what's behind it is Satan. He loves that. Now 1 Corinthians 7 says he loves to, to try us with sexual temptation and I reckon he is knocking down Christian men like ten pins on this one. Loves to test us out. Satan loves the internet, loves it. Loves how we take this good gift of human creativity and and twist it all up. And let me say, if you're struggling with sexual sin, it's not just a little problem, it is Satan slowly dismantling your life. Jesus says to us, you have a strong enemy. The second part of self-awareness is this, verse 33 and 34. You're not as strong as you think you are. Peter uh, hears this news of being sifted by Satan and he's not worried at all. Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Not worried. From the comfort and safety of this private meal, from the gathering of God's people, he roars like a lion. But out in the night, in the world, in the reality, he is far less bold. He's more like a pussycat in the verses that follow. 
The reality is brought to him by Jesus here. He says, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny that you even knew me. Three times you'll do that. Peter's loyalty won't even last the night. Even as he sees God's plan clearly, even as he sees his promise of a kingdom, even all that ringing in his ears, his courage fades all too fast. And anyone who has lived as a disciple of Jesus for some time will know that feeling. You know that feeling? And let me say this when it comes to our self-awareness that we're not as strong as we think we are. And I think this is really important. We need to be honest about that. Uh, We know that we're like Peter here in verse 34. We know that of ourselves, that we've experienced it again and again. But we think those around us are more like the Peter of verse 33. But if they only knew, question, why don't they know? Why don't uh, we know uh, each other's a weakness? Why don't we know that? Why do we think we're the only ones who struggle? Uh, Is it an English reticence? Uh, Perhaps we don't want to talk about our struggles or our sin. Uh, If so, know this, uh, that is not Christian. Uh, Those feet in ancient times did not walk on England's mountains green. Uh, There's nothing Christ-like about English reticence. Talk plainly. Help each other. Peter was the leader of the early church and he was a monumental failure, a complete failure. Saved by grace. Now what makes you think those around you are different? And as we start to be more honest with each other, remember the third aspect of genuine self-awareness. Do you see it there in verse 32? You have a strong enemy, yes. You're not as strong as you think you are, yes, but you have a very strong advocate. You see there in verse 31, Satan's power is only by God's permission. He had to go up and ask to do this. There's not two ultimate powers at war in our world that anyone could win. No, there's only one, God. When Satan wants to attack us, he needs to go to him first. God is sovereign here. He gives permission not so much to cede to Satan's purposes but for our good and his glory. And where do you see that glory? Well, you see it there in verse 32 that even as Satan attacks us, God in Christ is defending us. And he is stronger than the strong man. He is stronger than Satan. And so he says to Simon, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. It's wonderful, isn't it, to know the the strength of our God, to, to raise us even from death. But it's equally wonderful to know that even now he doesn't stand back as Satan attacks us. Uh, hoping that our faith will endure. No, even now he is at work strengthening our faith, praying for us at his Father's side. So the Christian community should be marked by humble self-awareness of our enemy, of our own weakness, but of our mighty and present friend. And finally and briefly, the fourth mark of genuine discipleship, verse 35 onwards, is humble preparation. The community, the Christian community, is to mark, be marked by those who are prepared. Prepared for what? Well, these verses make clear to us that part of our job in waiting for God's kingdom to come is seeking to see that kingdom advanced in our world because we know it will. We know there is coming a day that Revelation says that the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. 
He will reign forever. We know that day is coming, so while we wait, we seek to advance that kingdom. We seek to see people one for the king, people who have a share just like us in that kingdom. And as we do, Jesus says this, realise that is going to be very, very hard. Uh, he, he speaks to them of previous missions that he'd sent out his, uh, his disciples on. Uh, he told them, well, when you went out there, you, you lacked nothing, did you? Uh, you? You had food, you had provision, you had housing, everything was there because uh, at that point there was still an openness to Jesus as a king. But now, he says, times have changed. Now, verse 36, he says, be prepared and especially take a sword with you. What sort of response should you expect when you seek to advance God's kingdom in this world? Jesus says, expect no reward, no recognition, no protection. In fact, expect the opposite because our world has made up its mind about Jesus. Our world has rejected his rule. So be prepared. Now when he says bring a sword here, he's not saying be prepared to take this world by force. Uh, that's the mistake the disciples make. Uh, you see it there in verse 38, they start counting how many swords they've got. They've only got two. They say, is that enough? And Jesus isn't saying, yes, that's enough. He's saying, just stop it. You've missed it altogether. He's saying to them here, be prepared to face opposition as they will all the way through Acts. And Jesus drives home the need for this preparation by showing them why in verse 37. He says, you need to remember who you're following. You're following the one who was numbered with the transgressors. You're following the one who will die a shameful death in between criminals, who will be taken in this world out of the city, out onto the rubbish pile and dumped there. You're following that one. And if you follow him, be prepared to be treated the exact same way. Let me ask you, is that what you expect when you go to this world with the gospel? To be numbered with a rejected king? To be regarded that way? Jesus says, be prepared for that. And as we do, in closing, we need to have ringing in our ears the scripture that Jesus quotes here, Isaiah 53 verse 12. Let me read that verse again. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sins of many and made intercessions for them. What should the auditors see when they look in on us? Uh, when our life as a Christian is put under the microscope. They should see those who are gladly numbered with a crucified king, but also those who know they have nothing to lose and all to gain by being numbered with him. Those whose every sin, every regret, every guilt is carried by that king. Those who know they will share in his kingdom, at his table, forever. Let's pray.